Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk about vaccines. Let's talk about what the vaccines really mean and what the mandatory vaccination is about to medical professionals, some of the best in this country. Dr. Jason Kendrachuk is an assistant professor and a Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. He's very kind to give us his time quite regularly. Dr. Kendrachuk, thanks for coming back on the program. Thanks for having me on, Roy. What are your thoughts, first of all, about the uh, the issue of mandating vaccination? Oh, I think, you know, it's, it's a loaded question, right? I, and listen, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of vaccination, obviously, and, and certainly looking at the position we're in with Delta and with, with COVID-19 in general, we know that we are fighting a, a very difficult battle in regards to trying to get, uh, you know, this, this transmission curtailed. And vaccination, unfortunately, is a massive part of that. So we, we need to be able to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Now, the other side of this is, we also have to do this equitably, and we certainly have to do it in a, a space that is uh, certainly uh, both transparent, but also is open and understanding of, of the different people within our communities. So, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do this expeditiously, but at the same time, we, we need to be wary of what some of those limitations are for, for vaccinations and where we need to be doing some, some extra work. You have no doubt whatsoever that the vaccination, the vaccines, are the way to go and the vaccines are effective. And we are, in fact, or the medical world, the research world, is establishing better vaccines all the time. They, they are. And, and here's the position I, I look at, at with this, Roy, is the fact that you know, we, we've got a, an issue with transmission. We've got to get certainly transmission curtailed. Vaccines are a part of that. We certainly know that they're not 100% protective from uh, you know, from or allowing somebody to be 100% protected from getting infected, but they reduce the tr- the strain on our healthcare system. And to me, that is one of the most important factors through the entire pandemic: is how well can we maintain healthcare, uh, not only for COVID but above and beyond COVID. Do you get a little tired having to repeat that message? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it certainly it's it's exasperating, but uh, you know, at the same time. Listen, I, I'm appreciative of the position I'm in. I, I certainly I look at where I came from, and, and I'm very humbled by, by what uh, I've been able to do in my career. But this is a part of, I think, our social contract as scientists is we've got to be you know, willing to provide this, ty- this type of communication and really repeating ourselves verbatim over and over uh, to, to try and get these messages out. Yeah. Do you get frustrated with the fact that we have an uneven application when it comes to vaccine regulations or being vaccinated? Uh, Ontario lifting capacity limits yesterday on a series of venues like theaters, sports events, uh, not restaurants, different provinces taking different approaches, which is which is confusing and irritating to people who are just trying to get through this thing. Well, it is, right? And I think, you know, a lot of people are looking to to see, okay, well, nationally, what is the plan? And I think that's the difficulty is, you know, we, we have certainly recommendations, but we don't seemingly have that oversight where, you know, this is the basically the federal, you know, kind of, uh, you know, space. And then this is what regionally we, we may be adjusting based on, on situations. So it is confusing, certainly having lived between two provinces over the last, you know, 18 months. Um, it's, very difficult to try and figure out what is the you know the the position between between two you know side by side provinces. 
Yeah. Uh, you're, you're a specialist in uh, viral pathogenesis and uh, Canada Research Chair in molecular pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses. I didn't think I'd get through that. Uh, <laughs> where does COVID, I'm not trying to make fun of this, but uh, where, where does COVID and its variants fit into the emerging and re-emerging of viruses spectrum? Yeah, it's a great question. Right? This, is, this is the one I think we've, we've certainly been fearful of. Um, in the space that this was a virus that, that emerged very quickly. We, have, we already had an idea that coronaviruses were a concern for us, um, so that shouldn't have been a surprise. But I think what was a surprise was that it was a community transmission. We hadn't seen this with either SARS or MERS beforehand. So where this fits in is this is the thing that we've been talking about for years and, and really decades of saying we need to be better prepared because when these things hit, they hit hard, and they will certainly hit unevenly across different regions of the world, and in particular those that are most vulnerable. So I, this this plays perfectly, I think, within the suit of, of skills that, that we've been trained for. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think we're also frustrated by making the same mistakes that we've made, you know, through previous pandemics and epidemics. And other viral threats are a constant presence, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, this weekend, again, we, we had another Ebola case that's shown up in, in the DRC, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, in, in Badai. Um, they're, they're always around us. And I think that's the message that I, I keep trying to get out to people is, listen, we, we are not winning this war. I think we can try and, and come to a stalemate. Um, but when you look at the threat of infectious diseases, and especially those that we don't know about yet, listen, this is, this is why you know, people like me are, are staying up late at night worrying about these things, because... They have a tendency to emerge at, at the worst times. And how are they discovered? Is it always uh, through a series uh, or, or a series of infections? No, not necessarily, right? I, listen, we, the thing that we've done really well, I think, over the last decade or so has actually been doing active surveillance. So actually having people going out in the field, uh, you know, sampling wildlife, certainly specifically sampling bats. We've got some collaborations in Gabon that are doing this uh, and certainly with other animal species. So it's active. The problem is, we're still, I think, at an infancy in being able to identify a virus that's circulating in nature and saying, okay, this has all of the prerequisites that will make it a pandemic virus or, or even an epidemic virus. So that's where we're lagging a bit, but we're certainly picking up. And, and I think you're going to see a lot of uh, increased, um, increased funding and a lot of increased sustainability in this, uh, in this space in, in the next few years. Dr. Kentridge-Chuck, how do we explain, if it's, I don't know if it can be explained, but last year there was almost no seasonal flu. How does that happen? Well, I think it's a combination of things, right? So, so the biggest thing is really when we look back at the non-pharmaceutical interventions we took. So, you know, accepting that we were all, you know, you know, appreciating the fact that distancing was important, hand washing was important, um, certainly masking was important. But we also were very conscious of if we were symptomatic, we were staying home. We also saw increased, uh, you know, adoption of, of vaccine or of influenza vaccination. That really goes to show us then. You know, that if we want to try and control infection, we actually can. And influenza is a perfect one. It kills 500,000 people a year across the globe. We can control these things um, through our basic tendencies and behaviors. But we have to put in the effort to do that. Is it true that uh, the vast majority of new admissions to ICUs in this country are unvaxxed, unvaccinated people? Yeah, the, the unfortunate reality, we're, we're seeing it from, from province to province. And certainly, uh, you, you know, even when we look back at the U.S., uh, when they had their first incursion of Delta, uh, you know, in the last few months, it, it was predominantly, and I shouldn't even say predominantly, it was significantly overrepresented by people that were unvaccinated. And that's, 
the unfortunate side of this right now is we have something that will keep people out in, in unbelievable numbers if we can get widespread adoption of it. So the final question for you, and uh, this has been asked, I'm sure, of you many times. We're all trying to get on top of this. What's the efficacy of the first set of vaccinations we've received for COVID-19? Is it, is it a six-month period? Are we going to require, uh, by and large, all of us who've been vaccinated, are we going to require a booster by the end of the year and maybe another booster in 2022? Yeah, so listen, I think we're all well on our way to to likely needing a booster. But Jeff Kwong, uh, Dr. Jeff Kwong, the University of Toronto, presented some amazing data from Ontario this week looking at, at this exact question. And one of the things that he was able to parse out was, listen, when you look at the certainly the delayed intervals that we have between first and second doses in Canada, we're actually seeing... Um, you know, really high efficacy against uh, symptomatic infection and certainly hospitalization uh, out to, you know, around eight months now. But we have to appreciate those earliest people that got vaccinated, those were people that were in high-risk groups and were healthcare workers and did not get that extended interval. So I think that's why you're seeing the third doses being recommended for those. More broadly, I think we're still trying to figure out what the data is going to say beyond, beyond eight months. And, and that, unfortunately, we're going to have to get in real time. I want answers for you and me and for the people of Canada, no matter what your political allegiance may or may not be. We need to know what went on in that lab and how China was involved. Because the Chinese government has not exactly been, shall we say, consistently friendly toward Canada. So let's talk about that. Elaine Dewar is back with us. She's the author. This is a remarkable book on the origin of the deadliest pandemic in 100 years. It really is an amazing book. Everyone I know who has read the book just raves about it. And uh, I spent a lot of time going through the book. I, I must confess, I haven't read it cover to cover because I can't. I, I just spend so much time researching things, but I've spent a lot of time on uh, Ms. Dewar's book. And it is amazing. It is a fantastic read. Elaine, thank you for coming back. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you for being so kind about the book. Well, it's terrific. I mean, I'm, how much time did you spend researching this? You know, it it was over the course of a year, but I have to say that in that year, I didn't have very many weekends off. It was really go, 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 go as hard as I could. You have so much detailed information. It's like a team of investigative journalists went at this. But you, but you did it on your own, and I, and I know I'm sounding like I'm, I'm a fan, but I am. Well, thank so, you very much. Yeah, I, really, I really admire good investigative journalism. It's, it really is what, what our business really cut its teeth on, and that's what we should always be engaging in. But let's talk a bit about this, this, uh, this situation with the Winnipeg Lab, some background information. What was or is going on in the world of virus studies and development which would lead to the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg? Uh, what, what's going on that would eventually turn the compass point toward them? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by the compass point. I mean, it, there has been a huge expansion of these high containment labs throughout the world. I think the United States has uh, 15. China plans to have five or six within the next few years. Russia is talking about 15. Canada has one. Ours was created in 1999, um, and it was the first and may still be the only um, high biosafety containment lab, which studies both pathogens that have uh, an impact on human beings and pathogens which have an impact on animals. It 
because it was the only one where two kinds of pathogens could be studied, I think it was a very attractive place uh, for people in other parts of the world who didn't have a similar facility and who wanted to learn from the best. So that, that lab in Winnipeg was a world-leading lab for many years. Uh, it was led by a guy named Francis Plummer in the beginning, who was very interested in the origin of HIV, uh, which causes AIDS. And he crafted a number of relationships with leading scholars around the world, especially in Nairobi and Kenya, to explore uh, various theories about HIV's origin and how HIV is spread, and perhaps to arrive at a vaccine. That never happened. At the same time, uh, Ebola became a subject of great interest in that lab, and Heinz Feldman um, went on with various parties to create one of the first Ebola vaccines in the world. So a lab in the beginning with very high level of scientific credibility uh, that may not be the same kind of level of scientific cre credibility these days. It has uh, become a very bureaucratized kind of place. Yeah, it certainly has gotten a lot more attention than it got before, and many questions sort of circulate around it that require answers. Now, your narrative speaks of Ji Zhang Li of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. She was known, you, you write, as the Batwoman or Batwoman in China. So and I'll ask you who she is and what research she was conducting, but let me just go on a little bit further and add this to the question. In 2019, three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology were hospitalized just before COVID appeared in the Wuhan population, and COVID was adapted to humans already, you write, at that time. What was going on? Well, let's let's start with part one. Shi Zhang Li uh, is a PhD um, who was trained first in China and then got her PhD from Montpellier II in France in 1996. She's a very able scientist um, who initially was only interested in things like pathogens that infect shrimp. But after the SARS pandemic of 2003, along with uh, a group of scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, led by a guy named Lin Fa Wang, who was then in Australia and also with a position at East Normal University in China, uh, and a group of scientists also from the United States, led by a guy named Peter Dajak, um, really decided that they wanted to see if they could track down where SARS had originated, in what animal had it spilled over from. They published a very important paper in 2005, which established that bats seem to carry precursors to the original SARS. And that set off a kind of gold rush uh, among scientists looking for pathogens that might spill over from animals like bats, which carry many different kinds of pathogens, into the human populations that live near them. And so Shi Seng Li's lab became the most important lab for the study of those kinds of coronaviruses spilling over from bats um, anywhere in the world with the largest single collection of coronavirus samples anywhere. When SARS-CoV-2 appeared upon the world, uh, scientists in China actually first raised the alarm that perhaps SARS-CoV-2 had escaped from one of the two labs in Wuhan, 
which study coronaviruses. Xi Zhengli's lab was one, and another is the Wuhan Center for Disease Control, where another guy had been, you know, wandering around in bat caves all over China for years, pulling back bats and samples from bats for study in the lab. That um, article was published in a preprint form in February and was very rapidly taken down. But a number of people all around the same time became concerned that perhaps this thing had actually escaped from a lab as opposed to spilled over from some animal in, in the Wuhan seafood market, which was the first place that people sort of singled right. out. It's, it's a great book, Amazon. Uh, where else can you get it? Elaine, everywhere, I guess, right? Everywhere, but, you know, please go get it from the publisher who also has a bookstore. It's called Biblioasis in, in Windsor. The, Dan Wells really took a big risk on this project, and he really deserves support. Okay, what's the, what's the name of his uh, organization again? Biblioasis. B-I-B-L-I-O-A. Now you've got me. O-A-S-I-S. I know. I make it complicated when my brain's involved. Yeah, brain won't uh, work. <laughs> now, so we're talking about Shi Zhengli. And you told us about who she is, Batwoman. Now, she finds herself involved in Winnipeg at the microbiology lab. I don't know how that happened. She's saying Lee herself was not involved. One of her colleagues in her lab was. So the researchers were. Right. Yeah, one okay. of the researchers from her lab was working with researchers in Winnipeg. Okay. Let me put this together just in the interest of time, and then you can answer it all. Put it, you, you'll put it together far better than I. So, so they have the Chinese researcher and... Uh, we had Canadians um, involved as well. Uh, Dr. Key, right? Yeah, I think the name is pronounced Chu. Is it Chu? Okay. Yeah. So she's involved. She's an award-winning scientist. They're involved in work together. And eventually in 2019, uh, Ms. Q or Dr. Q and her husband are escorted out of the Winnipeg lab by the RCMP, and their security clearances are revoked. Not standard operating procedure. No. So but, tell us what went on. But described by PHAC, the Public Health Agency of Canada, as merely a matter of policy or an administrative issue. Normally, police don't get involved in administrative issues. So the problem here was that it came after Dr. Q had shipped 15 strains of Ebola to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to the lab of Xi Zhengli, uh, along with two other kinds of glycoproteins. So you should understand that in Wuhan, the first biosafety level four lab in China was built at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Up until late of 2018, that lab, though it was started years before, was not allowed to import Ebola pathogens for study because the bureaucrats in China were nervous about it and they didn't feel that the lab was up to actually working well and safely with Ebola. Ebola is a matter of huge concern to China because it is endemic throughout Africa. And Africa has, has, has a huge position on China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, particularly, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has minerals and, and of immense importance to the technological industries of the future. Uh, China is very involved in the DRC, and just this week, the WHO tells us that it's yet another Ebola outbreak. So Ebola is a cause of huge concern in China. It's not endemic. They don't have their own strains to study. And Shang Yu ships all of these uh, pathogens to China just as they're 
biosafety level four is finally available to take them in. In other words, providing the seed strains for China to study. And the question becomes why was Canada, you know, the the, the only place or the main place to provide those uh, strains for study? And the answer seems to be that from 2014 onwards, the leading bioweapons virology experts in China were either being trained in our lab, working with our lab, and producing papers about specifically Ebola, Ebola vaccines, and Ebola treatments. It is stunning. It, it really it is stunning. And then for the government to say, oh, it's just no big deal, and standard operating I procedure. I think it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. So the, the, this has to be pursued when Parliament resumes in the very near future. And the the uh, opposition parties have to chase it down because we know that the Liberals aren't going to initiate it. But what are the questions that need to be answered, Elaine? And keeping in mind, you told us last time that in China we have uh, more than cooperation taking place between the scientific community and the People's Liberation Army. It may not be exactly voluntary, but that's the reality. No, the reality is that Xi Jinping, the president, ordered years and years ago that military and civilian researchers must work together. Right. So um, when you look at who's publishing what with our scientists in Winnipeg, what you find is the name of a person, Chen Wei, who is a major general in the People's Liberation Army. She is the leading bioweapons expert and the leading Ebola expert in China, and she's publishing papers on experiments done in Winnipeg. Does this make any sense to you? Not even a li- doesn't even begin to make sense, keeping in mind what Winnipeg is supposed to be. Right. Winnipeg is supposed to be uh, a, a lab of importance to Canada and Canadians. In order to work there, you need a secret clearance. And yet a number of scientists from China seem to have traipsed through there over the last six-year period. And the government will not answer this basic question. Did they get in? Did they have secret clearances? Who brought them in? Who were they? And the public health agency won't answer questions no, either. No, it will not. It, it cites privacy r- rules, uh, which is absurd. What worries you? What worries me is that we will not find out what happened here and why it happened here. The government has moved heaven and earth not to answer those questions. And I am really hoping that uh, in this new session of Parliament, we go back to where we left off, which was a House resolution to turn over all documentation unredacted relating to the firing of, of Ketting Cheng and Cheng Yuqiu. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i so uh, unnerved by this because when Canada becomes involved, when our microbiological or microbiology lab in Winnipeg becomes involved, China is involved, and we don't have the best relationship with China. They cut us off from the vaccine uh, developments, and I, I'm not sure that was, wasn't all unrelated. But we need answers. And let me ask you this. In the minute we have left, has anybody from any of the political parties come to you? Because I think they should. They should come to you and talk to you about what you what you have, or at least read your book. Well, you know, my publisher, who never says die, sent out about 700 letters to people who he thought might be interested in some of the facts in the book. We heard back eventually from a person from the Conservative Party he put the book in the hands of uh, the leader of the NDP party. I don't know that he did the same with members of the Liberal Party, but certainly they are aware of the book. And the question is whether, you know, they will actually answer some of the questions it raises. I really hope they will. These questions 
are absolutely in need of being answered. There is a requirement that they be answered, and the federal government needs to turn over the documentation to Parliament. If they don't share every single piece of information with the Canadian people, well, I suppose we could debate that and discuss that, but the Parliament needs to know what went on, and in an unredacted manner. It's too easy to just say, well, we'll just redact this part. We, they don't need to know. Yeah, we do. Amazing book, Elaine. Thank you so much. Biblioasis, right? Yep. So I, I sent a study um, the other day and uh, by listeners sent by email. And I looked at it. I'm very interested. Study is uh, COVID-19 lockdown costs benefits, a critical assessment of the literature and the author of the study is Professor Douglas Allen, Professor of Economics at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Professor Allen, thank you for coming on the program. How are you? My pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm okay. Uh, I, I'm just looking at the very beginning of, your, uh, of, your, of, of what you wrote at the, uh, the intro. I see these words. Examination of more than 100 lockdowns or lockdown effects shows that often the benefits of locking down were overestimated while the costs were underestimated. Most recent research shows lockdowns had, at best, a marginal impact on the number of COVID-19 deaths. So talk to us about that, please. And was it a surprise? Was there an expectation going in? Um, all right. Uh, so I can remember when uh, back in March of 2020, driving home and hearing that we were going to lockdown for two weeks uh, to bend the curve. And I remember the thought that I had that, you know, this must be something like smallpox. Uh, it must be so deadly to justify such a such an action. But very quickly, within about three or four weeks, when we got the first mortality data, we realized that uh, COVID was had a natural mortality, that it was basically killing old people who are already sick. And that's when I started investigating the epidemiological models and the various cost-benefit studies that had come out in the early days to justify lockdown. And I found that they made four fundamental errors or assumptions that are just blatantly false that led to a massive overestimate of the benefits of lockdown and an underestimate of the costs. And uh, just very quickly what those four things are, um, the parameter values that they used to estimate their, their models were just way overestimated. They assumed that 100% of the population was vulnerable. The infection fatality rate and the reproduction numbers, which are key parameters, uh, were overestimated. The most important mistake that these models made is in economics, we would call them zombie models because these models assume that people don't react to the virus threat that's around them. And uh, as a result, they tend to uh, explode. The virus enters a population and just continues to explode because people are ignoring the fact that the virus is around. Um, the models overestimate the value of uh, human life and they way underestimate the costs uh, of death of, of lockdown by only looking at the GDP costs, not all the other consequences that lockdown have. Yeah, I looked at this particular sentence that you wrote, the most reasonable estimates of lockdowns suggest that lockdown is a great policy disaster. And then moving on to the next point that I circled, no government's conducted cost-benefit analyses of lockdowns they enforced. That seems just off the page ridiculous. So, yeah, in terms of the policy disaster, I've, I've tried to come up with anything else that comes close and nothing comes close in terms of the cost benefit ratio. So one of the things I do in this paper is I, is I, is I use a little uh, 
a technique to estimate a cost-benefit ratio. And yeah, I, I get a cost-benefit ratio of about 140. So the costs are about 140 times the benefits. If you think of the fast ferry fiasco in British Columbia 20 years ago that brought down the NDP government, that had a cost-benefit ratio of about three. Uh, so I, that sort of puts it in perspective. In terms of, of cost-benefit studies, uh, there are no published cost-benefit studies done by any government that I can find. They may or may not have done them, but uh, uh, I, I find it hard to believe that they're unaware of, of, of the actual cost. Does anybody ever say, uh, look, you can't measure it in these terms because it's a pandemic and people are dying and it's a, it's a virus that's spreading very rapidly and it's, uh, it's mutating, it's coming up with its own uh, revisions to continue to survive. Does anyone challenge you on that and say we shouldn't be doing this? Um, well, uh, just to break that down a little bit, I mean, we can sort of understand why in March of 2020, when faced with these sort of apocalyptic predictions. So, you know, the Imperial College of London model, which so much of the policy was based on, it predicted that Canada was going to have 266,000 deaths by July of 2020. And if we had completely locked down, there would still have been 132,000 deaths. And so in the face of that, um, you know, we can forgive politicians and that for, for reacting so strongly, shutting down hospitals, creating field hospitals and all the rest of it. But by July of 2020, there were not 132,000 deaths. There were only 9,000 deaths from COVID. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, COVID turns out not to be as, as fatal as, as was predicted. But on the other hand, the question is this, if by locking down, we're actually causing more deaths, uh, shouldn't we be considered that? I mean, it's one thing to say there's a pandemic and nobody's saying there's not. And it's and nobody's saying that COVID doesn't kill people. But by locking down, if you delay one death, but cause 140 others, uh, isn't that something that you should do? Oh, I think, that's, I think that's critically important. And and as the lockdowns were being called, I was I had doubts. I, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an economist. I'm I'm a generalist. Uh, but I I had doubts, serious doubts, and I thought it was probably, or at least some of it, is knee jerk response. And that's what Colonel David Redmond has told us from Alberta, who was the executive director of the Alberta Emergency Management uh, Association for many years. He also said there's no no cost-effectiveness uh, breakdown here. So what are we coming away with? What's the takeaway here? Well, the takeaway, I mean, there's a couple of takeaways. One, one takeaway is I think we're in a, what I call a bad political equilibrium. Uh, so imagine you were a politician in the spring there and you're faced with those numbers and you made this decision to do this, you know, really unprecedented step of locking down. And then four weeks later, you found out it was a terrible mistake. Would you admit that you were wrong? and that you had destroyed at the time one third of the wealth, uh, you know, uh, there's no way you would admit that. And so what happens is the politician doubles down and they continue to double down, hoping that eventually this thing reaches an endemic state and they can declare that though costly, it, they were victorious. And so that's one lesson. We have to be very leery of that, that, uh, you know, the, the, that the, the state has a, has a strong incentive not to admit that they were wrong I think the second lesson is, is that we as citizens have to um, pay attention to the actual costs and benefits. Because like you say, you're a generalist, but you know you, you don't need to be a specialist to recognize the costs that are going on around us. No, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. I did, I did so many interviews with Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, about over 200,000 businesses on the verge of going out of business. 
And this is the sector that employed 8 million Canadians, the number one employer. And and what was the the reason for them being in this terrible state? Lockdowns. Right. But, you know, lockdown had all kinds of other effects. If you know families that have children in school that, you know, has, you know, there was a wide range of children that were affected and affected differently. But, you know, last in the spring of 2020, you know, about a third of kids didn't have access to enough computers and software to actually, you know, they lost about three months of education in the spring. Uh, there are other effects of school closures, effects of unemployment, uh, deaths from uh, not visiting hospitals, you know, on and on and on. The, the, the number and types of costs turn out to be enormous. And uh, yeah, e- everybody is kind of aware of them. Well, it's fascinating uh, reading and uh, it, it, it really hits home and it demands response from politicians and not just, I think we're considering lockdowns again for this fourth wave of COVID. That doesn't work. Your, your study demands response and answers that are understandable and not uh, evasive. Well, yeah. yeah, we're not just considering lockdowns. You know, in British Columbia, we have regional lockdowns all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, you point out in the book as well uh, that uh, lockdowns took place, the ones who you looked at, uh, took place inside nations' borders because people bring up the New Zealand situation. Well, that's an island nation, and they were keeping people out of out of New Zealand. But you were talking about lockdowns that happened inside a nation. Yeah, I, I was not looking at policies of isolation, which are another type of policy, which, you know, if you've been following what's going on in Australia and New Zealand, it's not clear that that was the right strategy either. You know, they, they, they've borne incredible costs. And in fact, yeah. the New Zealand government just last week decided they were going to give up on isolation, that it would be impossible. So they went through all those costs for almost for nothing. And now they're going to try a policy of mitigation. Dr. David Jacobs is the chair of the Ontario Specialist Association and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. You'll find him on Twitter at drjacobsrad. And Dr. Jacobs has uh, kindly agreed to be on this program on many an occasion, and uh, we call these segments at the intersection of health and politics, politics and health. I don't know which sequence that should be in. We had an interesting conversation yesterday, an interesting exchange on the air. We had a the first medical ethicist with the World Health Organization as a guest, Professor Wickler from uh, Harvard University, and we were talking about prioritizing or not prioritizing uh, ICU admissions based on vac- being vaccinated or not vaccinated. And you know the hypothetical scenario, one bed, two patients, one vaccinated, the other isn't, who gets the bed? Right, right, right. Yeah, we, we, we've talked about this one before, and I think it brought us back to the uh, the point system. And then the question is, does a vaccine status uh, count on, on, on a point system when you're trying to decide uh, who gets that bed? There are many, many factors involved, but it's uh, it's a heartbreaking decision that hopefully no uh, no physician or hospital ever has to make. Yeah. Is triaging actually taking place as far as getting into uh, getting a bed in an ICU unit is concerned? Triage always happens uh, for the ICU well before COVID. Uh, there's, uh, on any given day, uh, there are multiple patients in our hospital who are kind of on the edge of needing ICU care, uh, and there are only so many ICU beds available. So there are oftentimes patients who are on uh, step-down units or or units uh, where they're being managed, but they would be better managed in the ICU. The ICU is always a limited, scarce resource in a hospital. Yeah. 
So I uh, was interested in in your sense about uh, lockdowns, and you uh, you take on any number of issues, and I really like uh, I like that, and I enjoy following you on Twitter because I never know what I'm going to see, but I know it's always going to be interesting. So on this lockdown issue, I just spoke with Professor Douglas Allen, economist at Simon Fraser University, and uh, he's done a study, cost-benefit study. And at the, the beginning, uh, he writes, examination of more than 100 lockdown effects show that often the benefits of locking down were overestimated, while the costs were underestimated. Most recent research shows lockdowns had at best a marginal impact on the number of COVID-19 deaths. What's your thinking on lockdowns? Well, I, you know, I read his uh, much of that paper, and he talks about years of life lost. So we have to remember that the majority of the patients who died were elderly, some of them beyond the expected, beyond ex- life expectancy. So when you're doing an analysis based on years of life lost, uh, you have to keep that in mind. It's not number of deaths, it's years lost. And so for, for many of the patients who died, the years lost would be uh, zero based on that analysis. So, you know, I don't know if that's the best way to measure the efficacy of lockdowns. Um, the other issue to remember is that we're in a post-vaccine phase right now. The majority of the lockdowns were conducted in a pre-vaccine phase uh, where we had no other options. The only thing we had to effectively treat um, COVID were, were steroids. The, the, that was really the, the main method of treatment for uh, a patient with severe uh, COVID. So how do you measure the efficacy? Do you look at death? Do you look at years life lost? Do you look at ICU capacity? Do you look at, you know, what do you look at to try and determine that? What we know for certain is that when there were lockdowns, the, uh, the, the, the waves peaked and came back down. So they, they obviously did something. Uh, but in terms of what was the actual economic, social, uh, and health carnage from that, that's going to take years to tease out. It also, I think, is going to be very interesting if lockdowns are suggested again, and I suspect they will be at some point, uh, whether people sign on, whether people say, yeah, okay, we'll do it again, or whether they're going to say, I don't think so. And and, and really, we also need to look at, I think, at the numbers of people who actually participated in uh, the lockdowns actively participated, didn't step sideways and say, well, I'm going to do this, but not that, because that affects the effectiveness of the lockdowns, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. And, and what you can see and probably will see is that there are pockets where people uh, really ha- didn't adhere to any of the lockdown rules. And those pockets will sometimes be completely unaffected, and other times they'll end up with super spreader events and lots of people in the in in the hospital. You see that with some of the weddings, the get-togethers, the parties. So it's a bit of Russian roulette in terms of whether the lockdown is going to have impact on on one particular group or another. Um, as to whether people are going to be willing to lock down, I think that uh, if you asked anybody on the street in Toronto right now, they'd say, yeah, not really interested in doing that again. But um, if the numbers really start to to bump up, there might be uh, more of a willingness. My projection, 
and certainly it will remain to be seen, is that we're going to see a rise in ICU cases as we move back indoors for the winter, and that is going to be predominantly amongst the people who are unvaccinated, uh, partially vaccinated, or the people with for whom the vaccines were never going to be particularly effective, which is, uh, is many of the elderly. But the majority will be unvaccinated. So I think we're going to have a bifurcation in the in the pandemic. There will be a pandemic for the unvaccinated and the vulnerable and a, and a pandemic for the people who are vaccinated. And it will be very different. Yeah. So how do you lock down based on that? It's, it's yeah, exactly. Well, what you just said, and I only have 30 seconds here, but what you just said makes me think about uh, this question. When are we going to catch up with people who require health care desperately and are getting it because there just isn't the capacity for them, including cancer patients? Well, uh, it's some good news is the uh, Ford government put out a fair amount of money for medical imaging. And I can say, at least at Humber, we're caught up with our MRIs. We're back to pre-pandemic level wait lists. So we've done a good job with that. Uh, the surgeries are going to take a lot longer to catch up on, uh, as will mammography and some other areas. Okay. But, uh, in some areas, we are making headway. So it's, it's good news. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.